Well, if your mom is alive, tell her you love her. And if you can get to her, put your arms around her and hug her, because there will be a day when you'll wish that you could do that, and and uh, you'll wish that you could express it. And so, thank God for your moms, and uh, every child here, every we're all children, aren't we? You, you never really lose that place, but... You ought to spend your life trying to make your mother's life easier. And uh, you ought to try to find ways to manifest your love for her. And every man here should thank God for his wife and should try his very best to um, express and lead the children to express how grateful they are. So happy Mother's Day. We showed that at our mother-daughter banquet last week. And I I watched it and was just a basket case you know watching it thinking about my mom and so for those of you that didn't see it I wanted you to see it those of you that saw it wanted to see it again I'm sure so happy Mother's Day to you open your Bibles if you will to the book of Proverbs chapter number 10 I'm going to read a verse of scripture to you this morning that I think goes a long way in revealing the heart of a mother Showing us the depth of her heart. Proverbs has a number of these scriptures, but this one in particular stands out for me. And Proverbs chapter number 10 is where we're going to be. And I'm going to read verse number 1. The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son maketh a glad father. Daddy's tend to beam, don't they, about their children. They carry them as if they had the bigger part (laughs) in bringing the child into the world. I remember my wife would give birth to our children, and it wasn't long I'd scoop them up in my arms and walk down the hall smiling at everybody. and I'd go stare in the window and look through the window, and there was my child. And... I would comment to people, you know, that's a father, a wise son. Well, he makes a glad dad, makes a father happy. But a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. It's such a contrasting verse. I think that God gives us such different sides of the coin there, if I could say it that way. A wise son makes a father happy. He makes him he, he makes him beam with pride and beam with joy. He's glad. That is my son. He's my son. I'm a happy man. My son is wise. But when a son goes off script and makes choices that are not wise but are foolish when he injures himself, when he injures his life, when he wounds other people. It's the heaviness of his mother. Fathers have a way of compartmentalizing things in their life 
They've got their job, they've got their hobbies, they've got one thing, they've got the other. And so when family goes wrong, they have a tendency to place that in a compartment. I can't do anything about it. I can't change that. Here's my compartment for all of the bad things. It's in the bottom drawer, file number 13. I'm just going to hide it because I don't want to see it. I don't want to feel it. I don't want to, I don't want to respond to it. Now, there are exceptions, I know. But this is, a, this is a principle given us in the Scripture. But a foolish son is the heaviness of his mom. She cannot escape. She cannot find repose. She cannot find relief. A foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. And I think that reveals a great deal to us about a mother's heart. Let's pray. Could we, Father, help us today? Would you give us on this day your special blessings, your touch in our lives? Move us today, God, and and honor our mothers as only you can. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Now I realize that we all come from different sides of life. There are different states represented here. We were born in different areas. And, and we were raised, many of us, under sometimes exaggerated, sometimes just slight, but different family dynamics. And the structure of our upbringing affects us even unto this day. We are impacted by how we were raised as kids. Now, we can, we can overcome that, and we know that. But there are certain life views, the way we see things, the way we view life is to a certain degree impacted by the way that we were brought up in our home. Some, some of us here come from traditional families. Others uh, grew up in what is painfully termed as a broken home. A broken home. That's a sad word. But it denotes the pain that comes from the fracture in that family unit. That hurts so many hearts. Some are raised by a single parent. Others, others by an, a, the addition of a step parent. Some, some had a mom and dad that grew old together. And you have the joy of watching that. Some suffered from the pressure of a, an abusive home. Others were nourished in an atmosphere of love. Some lived in a home. Others just lived in a house. There's a marked difference between those two. Some felt the bond of family, and yet others grew up having never truly, fully experienced any real deep emotional attachment. He's my brother. I haven't spoken to him in 10 years. She's my sister. We rarely speak on the phone. We have nothing to talk about. Sometimes even with mom and dad. But I think that probably... I think that probably if there is something here in our discussion of families that we all share in common, it would be a love and an appreciation for our mothers. Now, I want to say when I say that, I know, I know from the start there are sad exceptions to that. I understand that. You may be sitting here and say, I don't feel that affection. I didn't have that kind of a mother. And I understand that. But I am grateful that those are at least... Just exceptions, not the norm. 
And I'm thankful, I'm thankful for that truth. It, it, it was a simple, is it not? Just a simple mother-child relationship. A woman and her child that nurtured us and, and, and quieted our fears. Her voice, her voice brought peace. And her touch brought healing. And, and if she's not here, we miss her deeply. She said things that only a mother could say. And they went far below the surface and, and reached the heart. I think it's a significant thing on this Mother's Day that we recognize that the Bible says so much about women. <clears throat> There's so much in this book. And can I just say this, thankfully, that contrary to the uh, loud and often chauvinistic messages that come from pulpits, that women have a definite place of honor in the Word of God. Now, I understand family structure, and I understand, I understand how God designed the home, and I don't think that any home ought to get off kelter as the way that God designed it. But the idea that, that somehow that a woman is of a lesser gender and that somehow man is, is you know, he is the grand uh, pubate of, of life is just not given in the Scriptures at all. And yes, bless God, I know that woman was deceived first. I've, I know that. And that she gives birth in travail. But let's not forget that the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31, who was anything but a wallflower, uh, or, or, or let's not forget the fact that faithful women were such vital servants in the life and ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And could I just throw this out also to help us men remain or at least have some semblance of humility? And that is the fact that the woman was deceived, man was not. Man sinned willfully. He knew he was sinning, and he willfully transgressed the Word of God and the will of God. And, and uh, he also labors and by the sweat of his brow in a world that's been cursed by his disobedience. So let's, let's don't forget that. And let's don't forget the fact that, that Jesus was cursed for us and nailed to a tree that we might be reconciled unto God and has not... Has not the Bible commanded us as men to love our wives as Christ loved the church? Would you just stop for a minute and let that soak? Would you do me a favor? Would you do me a favor and not pass that off? Would you do me a favor and not deal with that flippantly? Would you just listen to that again? That Jesus Christ has commanded every man in this room that we should love our wives as Christ loved the church. And are you doing that? And are you attempting that? And do you even care how close you're coming to that? It's a lifetime, it's a lifetime assignment. So whoever you are and however good you are, you've not reached it yet. And, and, and it's something that we strive for in all of our lives. You're not to love yourself as Christ loved the church. That's easy for us as men to do. 
The radical statement to the church in Ephesus who viewed women as, as, as basically uh, a, a, a lower realm of society, Jesus said, husbands, love your wives. What? No, no, it's more than just ownership. It's more than just partnership. You are to have passion for her. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church. That means that marriages should reflect his love rather than the curse. No, 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 wait a minute. Look at me. Listen to me. Remember this. Man was cursed when? Back in the garden. Remember that? Man was cursed. Jesus died and became a curse for us that we might not suffer the curse. So in our marriages today, we're not supposed to be reflecting the curse. We're supposed to be reflecting the grace. He didn't say, husbands, lord over your wives. Husbands, you be the man. No, no, he said, husbands, love your wives. Not as the curse. Love your wives as I have loved the church. So he's changed the whole dynamic of the family unit. Now, I want to I shift gears. I want to talk with you this morning about how God's Word spotlights the heart of a mother. I mean, from one cover to the other, we can see women in the spotlight where God brings out women in different circumstances, some bearing different stigmas. And yet God throws the spotlight on them and shows us the reality of a mother's heart. First of all, let me talk with you for just a moment about those who yearn to be mothers. Because whether in reality or not in our day and age, there was a time in Bible days, where there was, a, there, was a, there was a stigma placed upon women who could not have children. <clears throat> in our modern day, we realize that that's not always the woman's fault physiologically, that <clears throat> sometimes that's, the, that, that, that's because of, of, of something with the father, and yet children are not produced, and so it's passed on to the woman, and, and there were great burdens that, that were felt during those days. And they carried the stigma of a word called barren. That's a hard word. That's an empty word. And yet the reality of the matter uh, is that, uh, that we find Hannah weeping. And, and so much so, she was so overcome, so uncontrolled at the altar that Eli the priest thought she was drunk. But she was there weeping brokenhearted because she bore the ridicule of others who mocked her because she had no children. It's not just Hannah, but it's Tamar. Tamar, whose husband Ur had died, and, 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 and now she is without provision. She's without protection. She's without someone to care for her. She has no security. And so after the death of her husband, she felt her only hope to gain any of that was in having a child by a man who was not her husband. And so because of the stigma, the lies that had been told her, she chose scandal. She chose shame rather than live through life without bearing a child. And we see that consuming struggle in Sarah. We see it in Rebecca. We see it in Rachel, Samson's mom. We see it in the Shunammite woman. The brokenness and the difficulty that they faced in not having a child. By the way, that stigma today can be very real. 
and 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 you can feel the great burden of of, of someone who desires to have children, but for some reason cannot. She's she's not still a child and not yet a mother, and, and it can leave her world very gray and very despondent. And then there are those that have suffered miscarriages, who who wonder about the unfairness of having empty arms in a world that murders children. That does not regard the sacredness of life within the womb of a mother. I have to restrain myself. I have to restrain myself, my emotions. Because I can think of nothing more godless, nothing more repulsive, nothing more nauseating than for someone to, to, to vote, to stand for, especially someone who even has the audacity to name the name of Jesus Christ, and yet they are openly for the abortion of preborn children. To stand in the presence of a holy God and say, I advanced legislation, or I, I promoted the death of children. I'm grateful for our state. I thank God for living in a state that fights for the life of unborn children. And I'm repulsed by every person, every single person that feels otherwise. And if I had to lose five churches and spend the rest of my life sweeping parking lots, I would do it rather than change my stand on that. And somebody said to me, what do you what do, you do about church members? They, go, they just got to deal with it. And I'll just say this, anybody, anybody that, that feels that abortion is even remotely right, you belong at an altar, confessing your sins before a holy God rather than stopping the heart, the beating heart of a precious life that God has placed there. Can I remind you that Deborah a name famous in the Scriptures for her victory in leading Israel over uh, such an incredible uh, foe, was never connected with a child. And yet God used her. Her name is iconic in the annals of Israeli history, the Scriptures of the Hebrew children. It was Deborah that won the victory. Barak was there, but the victory was attributed to Deborah. And she said there, without a child of her own, as far as we know, she said, I, I arose a mother in Israel. What is she saying? I did not bear children myself, but my God gave me the opportunity that as a mother I influenced lives. And may I say to you, if you're here today, if you're listening on live stream, and you do not have a child that you hold within your arms that there are so many lives you can hold within your heart. May I encourage you to be like Deborah and to find your identity in him and to allow him to take your life and use it for his honor and his glory. Then second of all, there were those who were familiar with pain. So we find women in the Bible that struggled over motherhood. And then we find those who were familiar with pain. I think about Ruth chapter 1. And how that Naomi and her husband Elimelech left Bethlehem, the house of bread, and they went, they went to Moab, which was a, a, they went there to escape famine. 
And so they, 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 they made their way into Moab, and while they were there out of the will of God, her husband died, leaving her bereaved and having to raise two boys by herself. The story got worse because sometime after that, after the boys had grown up and had married and had families of their own, the wives of their own now, suddenly her two sons die. So now not only is she bereaved of her husband, but of her two sons, not only that, but she must now comfort her daughter-in-laws who are without their own husbands, her sons. And so she's a broken woman. She returns and goes back to the land of Israel, leaving Moab behind her. And, and, and when they see her, her friends say, are you kidding? Is this Naomi? And she utters to them a pain-filled reply in chapter 1 of Ruth, verse 20. She said, and say, she said unto them, call me not Naomi, call me Marah. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. You know what she said? Marah means bitter. Don't you call me Naomi. Call me bitter. And then in the next verse, we find that her view of God had been altered. She said this, I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home empty again. Then she said, Why call ye then me then Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me? And the Almighty hath afflicted me. Listen to that, would you? Listen to, let me give you the lineup of that. Listen. The Lord hath brought me home empty again. The Lord hath testified against me. The Almighty hath afflicted me. Naomi said, I don't, I don't view God as I once did. Can I, can I just say this to you that God knows who we are. God knows how weak we are. God knows the questions we have, and God knows the struggles we have. But if you'll read the rest of the story of Naomi, you'll find out that it did not end there. You'll find out, you'll find out that Naomi, uh, Naomi was indeed blessed of God. And you'll, you'll find that, that uh, uh, you can see the providential hand of God clearly in the life of Naomi. So it, when you see Naomi staggering back without a husband, without children, and you think her life is totally wrecked, if you'll follow Naomi, you'll find that Naomi was a blessed woman. So don't stop at the bitterness. Don't stop at the questions. Don't stop at, I'm not Naomi, I'm Marah. Find how God took the bitterness out of her life. Think of Miss Job. We talk about Job. Wait a minute, let's talk about Mrs. Job. We don't know what her name was. But all the attention is on Job, except every now and then, There's a Greek word I like to use, and if you don't mind, I'll use it now, though you won't understand what I'm saying because it's Greek. But every now and then from the pulpit, you'll hear an idioso preach, and he makes the statement about Mrs. Job. Why? Because she's, look, look, Job and her lost 10 kids. No, no, wait a minute. Not only that, they lost every ounce of wealth they had in the world. And so now... Now her, the man that can rebuild all of that, he's sick. His body's broken out in boils. He sits in an ash heap down by the junkyard, 
scraping himself and, and, and trying to get some relief from the boils on his skin, she walks up behind him and hears him uh, humming Amazing Grace or Oh How I Love Jesus. And she said, are you kidding me? Are you still sticking with this church stuff? Are, are, you still, are you still at it? Why don't you just get it over with, Job? Curse God and die. And some guy that probably fell off of a John Deere tractor when he was a child and got run over by the Harris now stands behind a pulpit and makes out that she's the wicked witch of the West. You know who she is? She is a mother and a wife whose world just collapsed on top of her. Ten children dead. She's bankrupt. She has nothing left. And her husband now, his body is falling apart. You ever notice that God never one time rebuked Mrs. Job? He never said, how dare you? No, preachers do, but God didn't. Because God knew who he was dealing with. He was dealing with a, a mother who was familiar with pain. I want to tell you, you may be here today with a heart full of scars. And life didn't turn out to be the happily ever after uh, that you imagined it. Your Prince Valiant may not have been very valiant. And it could be that you, you had a child that grew up and brought you pain that you never imagined possible when you were holding them as a child. But you bear their scar. I, I, I think of Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and Tamar, the daughter of David, both victims of rape. Women whose bodies and, and marriages should be a source of joy, and yet they've been corrupted by someone else's sin, violated, scarred by someone else. Life can get really messy. I sure have learned that in my years of ministry. Sin can change hearts that one time were honest and true and it spreads its collateral damage far and wide. Can you imagine how the heart of our Heavenly Father feels? When His children go astray and His children are filled with pain and sorrow? Why, why do we view God in such drab colors? Why, why is God so black and white in our vision of Him? Why is that? Do you know what the Bible said in, in, in Isaiah chapter 50, 53 verse 3? He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. It was so grotesque, they said we could not even look upon him. His visage was so marred. So here is a here is the Savior that was despised, rejected. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. That's not drab colors. That's living pain. Don't ever think, dear friend, please, that Jesus is emotionless when you hurt. He feels your pain. And the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, is one of the most precious because Jesus wept. Don't ever forget that. Jesus wept, and it was at the grave of a friend that Jesus wept. 
Next, not only does he spotlight those that struggle with motherhood, those who are familiar with pain, but he spotlights those who are carrying guilt. Would you, would you go back with me, way back at the beginning? Would you stand beside me as Eve stands in front of the grave of her son Cain, or Abel, and realizes that it was her son Cain that put him there? Do you realize that it was her decision to take of the fruit that brought the sin into the world, that wrecked the world, that wrecked the garden, and that put murder in the heart of her oldest child? Can you imagine the guilt of a mother who stands there thinking to herself, if I had never listened and taken that fruit, my boy would be alive. And her other son was a fugitive fleeing from the presence of God. What guilt. What guilt. What about Rahab? The harlot. That's what she was called. She was branded by her past. She was a harlot. I think no doubt that even though she escaped the destruction of Jericho, that it wasn't easy for her to escape her scarlet letter. Yet the Bible says in Psalm 103 verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgression from us. How far? The east is from the west. You want to find your past? Start going east, and when you bump into it, let me know. You'll be going the rest of your life. You know what he's saying? As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgression. It's gone. It's not there. Quit claiming it. Quit fretting over it. It's gone. And God left Rahab's broken past behind in the crumbled ruins of Jericho. The harlot was a forgiven woman, and God would lift her guilt. By the way, if you study the life of Rahab, she married Salmon. And Salmon had a son named Boaz. And Boaz had a son named Obed. And Obed had a son named Jesse. And Jesse had a son named David. Listen to me. The harlot was the great-grandmother of a king. That's what God does with our guilt. That's what God does with our guilt. And Jesus, the king of all kings, was of the lineage of David. Think about Bathsheba. Think about about the guilt of Bathsheba and the baby that she bore to David. The child died and the, the guilt that must have haunted her. And she held the lifeless body of her child knowing knowing that it was her decision and and her sin, along with David, that brought that tragedy into their life. And yet, Bathsheba gave birth to the wisest man that ever lived, King Solomon. What about the woman at the well? She 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 was silenced and shunned by... So many multiple marriages. I mean, just, just think, think of all that had happened. She had all these failed marriages. So what do all these failed marriages make you? They make you a failure. 
again and again and again and again. When are you going to learn? When are you going to, listen, you failed here and here. Why don't you just, why don't you just give up on all, why do, you, why do you keep going through the same routine? Why do you keep failure in your life? But then she met Jesus at the well. By the way, she was living at that time with a man in sin. But John 4, 4 says, Jesus must need, said, I must need to go through Samaria. Well, Jesus, why do why you need to go through Samaria? Because the Jews passed, the Jews went all the way around Samaria so as not to come in contact with them. Jesus said, I'm not going around, I'm going through because I've got an appointment. I need to go this way. Why do you need to go this way? Because there's a woman there that needs forgiveness. And so the divine appointment with the Son of God was with a woman full of failure, failed marriages, and now she's living with a man. Somebody said she left her water pot but took the well. She left her water pot, but she took the well of life inside of her. Jesus forgave her, and he he saved her. Can I say this? I want you to listen carefully. You may not be able to get over your past, and others may not be able to get over your past, but God can get over your past. I don't care who you are or what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what everybody else says about you. I'm telling you that, 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 that the one person who can get over who you were and what you did is the person that can change you today. That's the Lord. I am He. Isaiah 43, 25. Listen to this. I am He. Even I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. Whose sake does he do it for? His sake, not yours. God doesn't look down and say, Dean, I'm going to tell you something, son. You are one of the most amazing people I've ever met. And I am so impressed by you that here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to forgive you for your sake because you've earned it. No, I didn't earn it. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. God doesn't forgive you because you deserve it or that you've earned it or, or that somehow you merit it. God forgives you because Jesus merited it for you. God didn't forgive me for Dean's sake. God forgave me for Jesus' sake. God didn't say, I think so much of you, Dean. I'm going to forgive you. No, he said, I think so much of Jesus, my son, I'm going to forgive you. If he'll die for you, I'll forgive you. And whether you or I forgive others doesn't show what we think of them. It shows what we think of Jesus. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. That's how we're to forgive other people. So, I'm glad for God's forgiveness. And then, just very quickly, I'm going to close in just a second, but can I just take a second and talk about how that God shows the spotlight on adoptive mothers? I'm so thankful for that. I, 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 think, of, I think of the daughter of Pharaoh. I think of how that, by the way, she went against the decree of her father, and she rescued a little baby boy there in an ark down by the bulrushes, and She raised him as her own. It was a risk she was willing to take to save a child. An adoption is family by choice. And can I say that an adoptive mother 
certainly is no less mother, nor is a birth mother any more mother. Does it determine whether or not it's by natural birth or by adoptive choice? It's the quality of the heart that determines motherhood. And I, I thank God. I thank God for people who have had the joy of being rescued somewhere. My, my, my pop-up, my grandfather, as you would call him, spent some of his early childhood in Bethesda Home for Boys in Savannah, Georgia. And I've been back there and searched through their old files and found where my pop-up and his brother came in to Bethesda Home for Boys, the orphan's home there, and 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 just a touching thought to me of how that God took that young boy's life and and, and brought him to where he was, and my mom and my dad. Uh, I've told you before how that even in my own mother's side of the family, there was an illegitimate birth that had it not been for that, the grace of God, then we would not be here. Just God can... God can overcome so many things that man stumbles at. And then let me just take a moment and talk to those who raise their children alone. I'm just talking about women in the Bible. Rather than focusing on one woman, I'm thinking of all these women that God spotlights. And then there's that group of women that that raise their children alone. I think about the Syrophoenician woman. She was alone. She was unsupported. She was there uh, uh, persistent beyond comprehension on behalf of her dying child. And Jesus said to her, why, why are you bothering me? You know? Why are you bothering me? And, and he referred to her the name that the Jews called the Syrophoenicians dogs. And she said, yeah, but even dogs get to get crumbs. What a faith. The disciples had said, send her away, but she was willing, she was willing to scrounge for crumbs if need be so that she could help her daughter, and she would not give up until her daughter was healed. Sometimes that aloneness brings fear. I think of Hagar sent into the wilderness with Ishmael, her face buried in her hands. She weeps because she doesn't know that the child will ever see another day dawn. And yet God hears the crying of the child. And he took that child and made a mighty nation from that boy. Can I tell you, to those of you that raise your children alone, that you're not alone, that your heavenly father will fill that relationship and what's missing in your home if you'll let him. April the 15th, 1912, Rhoda Abbott stood with her son, Ross Moore, and Eugene. They weren't even supposed to be there. She'd been married to the United States middleweight champion, Stanton Abbott. Lived a good life for a while, but then his popularity and fame just brought them to the end of a relationship, and they divorced. She was heartbroken. She decided to go home to family in England, so she went back to London and She helped her invalid mother who was struggling after the death of her father and her and her boys stayed and did all they could for her mom. But finally she realized that these boys are Americans. They'll do better in the United States and so I'm going to take them back. So she booked tickets 
on a small liner to get her from London, England, back to the States. Well, there was a coal strike in England during that time, and so because of the coal strike, the smaller ship didn't, didn't leave, and they transferred her to the luxury liner, the Titanic. She, she was elated. She thought it was such a great stroke of luck that they would be able to make the trip back. It was almost like with all of the bad things that have happened to me, wow, we get to travel on the Titanic. But on the 15th of April, 1912, at 2 a.m. in the morning, the cold, freezing Atlantic breeze sweeping across them, they find themselves standing in the middle of, of cataclysmic chaos. Panicking crowds pushing and yelling. They, they were so overwhelmed by what they found when they came up from third class. There was one final lifeboat left on the starboard side. It was called the Collapsible Sea. And the boat was sinking lower and lower toward those waters of death, those frigid North Atlantic waters. The crowd was screaming to get on the boat, get on the boat, get on the boat, screaming at her, get on the boat. Well, she stepped into the lifeboat and reached for her sons, but the crewmen would not let them come. They were young teenage boys and considered not children but men. And so they were barred from getting onto the life raft. Rhoda, who's listed, by the way, as Rosa on the, on, on the manifest of the Titanic, though she never used that name any other place, climbed off of a lifeboat onto the deck of the sinking Titanic and grabbed both of her son's hands and said, if my sons cannot go, I will not leave them. That boat was lowered off the side, scraping its way down the side of the Titanic and finally free of it, they began to oar themselves away. The deck slipped beneath the waters and a rush of waves swept over her, knocking her and her two sons from the Titanic. Somehow, amazingly, she survived, but her boys were sucked under and she never saw them again. I thought to myself as I read the story of her life, she went to Jacksonville, Florida, lived several different places in Jacksonville, finally went back to England and lived out the last part of her life in war-torn London as the Nazis bombed the city to pieces. I thought, what a life. I read letters that she had written about her boys, and she talks about what they would have been like and what they would have loved and the things that she saw that they would have enjoyed. And I thought to myself, what a mother's heart. She, she chose love over life. She was willing to die 
for the two boys that she brought into this world. And for the rest of her life, though she never embraced them again physically, her heart never let go of Ross Moore and Eugene. There is no heart like a mother's heart. I love the poet who penned, If I were hanged on the highest hill, mother of mine, mother of mine, guess whose love would follow me still? Mother of mine, mother of mine. Thank God for the heart of a mom. I want us to bow our heads for a moment. Maybe, maybe you want to just think about how you can express to your mom your gratitude. Maybe as a, as a husband, you, you feel like you've fallen short. I, I, think that's a, I think that's an inventory, guys, we ought to take. I think we ought to inventory. She bore you children into this world. What's the major focus of your life, you or her? What you like or what she likes? What you want or what she wants? I think sometimes we're so selfish it's embarrassing, not just to us but to God who created us in His image, a God who gives, a God who gave, a God who loves. Thank God for mothers encourage you to bury your awkwardness to somehow some way go beyond the call of duty to express your gratitude 